My name is Sean, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you were here last week, we had this big, giant man on stage with a beard. We call him Steve Wright. Do you guys know Steve Wright? And he was talking about growing up in the 70s. And I thought, hey, let's just get some photos of some of our staff from the 70s. So here's Steve Wright from the 70s. You've never seen him without a beard, and now you have. He claims he was in kindergarten, but I think he was in middle school. Maybe he's just huge. He's always been a big guy. And then we also have Lisa Tudor here, and she's getting ready to ride her bike to school with her little sister. And she's getting ready for the 80s because she's got the feathered hair going on, riding their bikes to school in skirts and dresses. I mean, it's crazy stuff. And then, of course, we have the ginger on staff. You always got to shout it out to Carl Rettinger. Give him a little sugar. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Carl was a childhood actor. Did you guys know this? Have you ever seen the movie The Christmas Story? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Here he is, Scud Farkas. And he will be in the lobby later on doing the Scud Farkas laugh for you. Ha, 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 ha. It's great. Every Christmas, he just goes around the office doing that. And since I'm making fun of some of my staff, I thought I'd make fun of myself a little bit. So here's me in 1977. Yes, yes. Getting ready to go into fourth grade. I got the soccer uniform on, socks pulled all the way up. You know, that's just the style back then. And there was only one Star Wars movie out at the time, but I already had the lunch pail. And then do you see what's in my left hand? It's a trapper keeper. It traps the papers and it keeps the papers. High tech, kids. I mean, this is what life was like back then. No filter needed because, quite frankly, it's an old picture, and that's just the way it goes. Do you guys like pictures? Have you looked at an old photo album recently? Go home today. Open one up. It's one of the things I love to do. Pictures are powerful, and they're fun. It was in the beginning of the 20th century when journalists started to use the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. And it was actually around the time of World War I, they discovered that pictures could do things that words just couldn't. They told a story just in a different way. And so you think about the story of your life, the photo album of your life. In fact, if somebody were to be following you around with a camera these days, what sort of story would your life be telling I mean, maybe it's a really good story, maybe things are smooth, maybe things are fantastic, or maybe you're sort of feeling some turbulence in life. If life is sort of like a river, maybe it's peaceful, but maybe you're heading towards some of the, that white water, some of those rapids, or maybe these days you're in the middle of one of those rapids. We are in week two of a series we're calling White Water because all of us have these white water moments in life where we're going through a, a challenge, something significant, it's chaotic, we don't know how it's going to end up. And they can be scary because they're unpredictable, and sometimes we feel like we've fallen out of the boat, and we're swimming, and the waves are crashing over us, and we just want somebody to pull us back in. White water moments. Sometimes we look back on those moments, and we have this sense of, wow, I'm, I'm stronger for that. Other times we look back on those moments and we realize that our faith was stretched so thin that maybe it broke for a while. That does happen, you know, and it's it's okay. We talked about this last week. It's okay to lose your faith for a while. If it's not, then I I think I need to find another church because this is just how my life rolls. And I think God's okay with it. When we read the scriptures, there's all sorts of people in the scriptures, human beings, just like you and me that have lost their faith for a time and, and eventually 
kind of circle back to God. So it's okay to do that, for this to be a safe place where you can break out of the box and go, I, I just, I'm struggling with this. I'm, I'm wondering about this. Why is this going on? And to ask those difficult questions. Whitewater, we've all experienced it. And that's exactly what's happening in this ancient church in the city of Rome. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. And I believe if the Bible had, you know, pictures in it, or, or if they had cameras back then, that it would be filled with pictures. I think it would be a giant photo album. I think there would be pictures on every page of the letter to the Romans to kind of help tell the story, because Paul is actually going back into the ancient story of his own people, the ancient Israelites. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to Romans chapter 10. In this letter to the, to the Romans, Paul is telling the story of Israel over and over again. And he gets to a point in the story in chapter 9 where he starts all over again and he starts to retell the story. And he's still doing that now in chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 11, it's going to sort of resolve a little bit, and then he'll start over with some significant problems for the rest of the letter. But we're right at the beginning of chapter 10, and I think one of the reasons why Paul is telling the story is because sometimes we need to look back in order to have perspective on our present and to have hope for the future. You know, I've always struggled with that statement, you know, I don't have any regrets. I've never understood people that say, I have zero regrets. You know, I wouldn't change anything in my past because it's made me who I am today. Because I just sort of don't relate to that. I have all sorts of regrets in my past. And knowing what I know now with some years of wisdom behind me and some experiences and a whole lot of mistakes, I would change a lot of things about my past. I don't think it's bad to have regrets and to acknowledge the mistakes of the past. I think where that becomes unhealthy is when we begin to blame others for those parts of our story, or we begin to shame ourselves for those dark parts of the journey that we've been on. And Paul doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to blame. He doesn't want to shame. Actually, he wants to bring clarity. And what he really wants to do is bring hope to this little church that is struggling and in pain in their journey. They were, in, they were struggling and they were in pain. And, and I can't give you the whole context, but listen to last week. If you missed last week, then it gives you a little more context. But basically, we had these two strong cultures trying to figure out how to sit at the table of Jesus together. How do they do that? They, you had this strong, very ethnically Jewish culture, and that's the, the group that started the church, and then they all had to leave Rome, and the, the Gentiles took over, and then they were leading the church, and the culture changed, and then the Jews came back, and now you have these two groups. How do we get along? And many people were looking at the ancient Israelites saying, God messed up with you, or his plan wasn't perfect, and now he has to have another plan, and maybe he's really not faithful, and so they're struggling, just like we do, with their faith. And so Paul enters into the conversation, and he wants to provide them with some hope. And he says to those ancient Israelites, and he says to those ancient Gentiles, now these followers of Jesus, God is faithful, and don't you dare give up on one another. Gentiles, don't you think it's all about you now? Don't make the same mistake that they have made. And yes, Gentiles are flooding into the church, and the ancient Israelites were trickling into the church. But don't you make the same mistake. God's not done with anyone. 
And when we go from Romans chapter 8 to Romans chapter 9, there's this incredible grief that we experience with Paul. And he's still in that grief, but he starts to work it out a little bit when we get to chapter 10. And so look down at the very beginning of verse 1 in chapter 10. It says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And so down deep, Paul is longing for this. Last week, we asked the question, who is on your heart? Is there anybody that you've been praying for and hoping for that they would experience the transformational love of Jesus? You see, Paul is talking about this idea that it's never been about ethnicity and it's never been about pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps as if you could be good enough for this holy, holy, holy God. It's not about either of those things, so don't make those mistakes. Paul said it's always been about faith but a particular kind of faith, not just this sort of intellectual assent. I believe, yes, I'm going to pray a prayer, I'm going to do a formula, and then I'm going to go on my merry way, and everything's cool, and when I die, I'm going to go to this cloud, I'm going to play a harp in heaven somewhere. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's the kind of faith that puts one foot in front of the other, even though you're not exactly sure how everything's going to turn out. It's, it's the idea of participation, and specifically, Paul says, it's about participation with Jesus. This is what it's about, and participation leads to transformation, and Paul is longing for his ancient brothers and sisters. He's longing for those ancient Gentiles to experience the transformation that is available in a relationship with Jesus that's lived by faith, just putting one foot in front of of the other. But there's a problem, and he starts to unpack this problem. So look down in verse 2. It says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. And so there's these two things he brings up. There's a zealousness, and then there's a knowledge. We'll get to the knowledge in a little bit. But Paul says they were zealous for God. Paul could testify about that, and the reason for that is because their story is his story. He knows exactly what they're going through. He knows exactly where they're coming from. Paul's zeal drove him to become a religious terrorist. He was the one who traveled to other cities, dragging people and putting them in prison and, and beating them and then, and then having them put to death, casting his vote against them. Paul was a religious terrorist. He understood a culture of zeal without knowledge. Now, not all of the ancient Israelites expressed their zeal in the same way. In ancient Palestine, there were basically four major movements at the time of Jesus and at the time of Paul and the early church, before A.D. 70, when Rome came in and crushed Jerusalem. There were some people that that expressed their zeal by just escaping. We're going to get out of here. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We don't need to do this. We're going to build a wall around ourselves. We're going to build a wall around our children. Let's go out to the desert and do our own community and make up our own rules because we cannot handle any of this. We have to stay pure from this horrible world. And these were people that didn't engage the culture. They didn't love the culture around them. They escaped the culture. These were the Essenes. These were the people that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls that we've found. And then there were people that decided to express their zeal 
through their finances. They were the rich of the rich. They were the ones that were kind of the whatever percent you want to put on them. And they were made up of several families, several very wealthy families in ancient Jerusalem. These were the Sadducees, and they got in and they controlled and manipulated through their wealth. And they could get what they want because they had the means to an end. And then you had the, the group that was, they'd just as soon pick up a sword and, and chop off your head. Let's crush Rome today. Uh, there was this sense of revolution that was going to happen uh, during that time. These were the zealots. They were ready to fight at the drop of a hat. What are we waiting for? Let's go after them. And they finally did, and they lost in AD 70 to Rome. It's interesting that one of Jesus' closest followers named Simon, he's known as Simon the Zealot, came from that group. And his life was radically changed because of Jesus. And then there was the group that the Apostle Paul belonged to, the Pharisees. And there were really two groups of Pharisees. There were your live and let live Pharisees, and then you were the Pharisees that sort of were kind of like the zealots. And the Pharisees were sort of like the moral police of the ancient world. You know, everybody, you need to clean up your act, and we need to get ourselves together because God's not going to bless us unless we're super moral and we follow the law. And they, made, they had laws, and then they made laws on top of the laws, and they went around and they pointed their finger, and Jesus had a lot of struggle with these guys. They didn't really understand the whole idea of grace. And what I find interesting about these four movements in the ancient world is that I think you can kind of go through cultures of different times and different eras and find those four movements. There's always been people who wanted to escape it all. There's always, there have always been people that are like, we're not going to engage the culture. We're going to kind of build the fence around ourselves and stay pure from this evil world. Jesus said that we're not of the world, but we better be for the world. God so loved the world that he died for the world. He wants us to engage the culture around us. There's always been people that want to manipulate the system with their money. I mean, that's always been true. There's always been people that want to use violence to try to further their agenda. And there's always been people that point the finger that become the moral police of everybody else and try to get everybody else to clean up their act. Jesus called the Pharisees a bunch of hypocrites. On the outside, they were all clean. On the inside, there were dead man's bones. And Paul is saying, you guys had zeal, but you didn't combine it with knowledge. Paul realizes that he he comes from a highly religious and a highly zealous culture, but without the knowledge that he's talking about, we'll get to that in a minute, the zeal becomes incredibly destructive. And that was their experience. And so what is this knowledge that he's talking about? Look down in verse 3. It says, since they did not know... And the word here for knowledge and the word here for, for know, it's, it, again, it's not just this quick intellectual ascent. It's the idea, it's the word epinosis. It means firsthand, close, uh, intimate over a period of time knowledge. It's sort of like a couple that's been married for 50 years. And you'll hear them say something like, I thought I knew my spouse 50 years ago when we got married. Oh, but now I know my, my spouse. I thought I loved my spouse, after we'd been married for 20 years. But now that it's been 50, oh, man, I realize what love is now. It's a firsthand, experiential, 
over a period of time, face-to-face type knowledge, epinosis. They didn't combine their zeal with this type of experiential knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, what is that? We'll get to that in a minute, the righteousness of God, and sought to establish their own, their own what? Their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And so what is he talking about here? Well, way back in Romans chapter 1, he talks about this concept of the righteousness of God. And so in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, it says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So there's this thing called the gospel. And in some way, it reveals this other thing called the righteousness of God. And he says it's a righteousness that is by faith. Again, it's that faith, one foot in front of the other. And he says from first to last. And so remember, he's writing to an audience. There's a context. The scriptures are culturally embedded. And so he says, yeah, from first, okay, the ancient Israelites to the last, okay, the Gentiles. But it also has a bigger meaning. All people of all generations of all times It's not about where you're from. It's not about how good you can be from first to last. It's always been a righteousness that's by faith. And he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so what is is this thing called the gospel that announces, that proclaims, that shows the righteousness of God? The gospel, that word gospel, euangelion, or good news, actually wasn't something that the early Christians made up. They actually stole it from the ancient Romans. And so Julius Caesar in 44 BC is assassinated, right? He's assassinated by Brutus, and I think the other guy was Cassius or something like that. And then all chaos breaks loose in the Roman Empire. Who's going to be in charge? And everybody starts to fight. So Octavian, who was sort of this adopted son of Julius Caesar, uh, he gets together with Mark Antony, and they decide to kill Brutus and this other guy. But then they start to fight against each other. And then for 13 years, Octavian and Mark Antony start a civil war. It was a horrible time in the Roman Empire. And back in Rome, people are overcrowded, and they're starving, and they're wondering, is there any future? for us? Is there any future for our children? Can you imagine living during 13 years of a civil war? Finally, Octavian defeats Mark Antony, and he flees off to Egypt and Cleopatra and that whole story. And then Octavian is in charge. And everybody knew that the Roman Empire was now going to be stable, was going to be secure. And whether you were for or against Octavian, you're like, okay, now there's a future. There's something different that's going to happen. But it took Octavian a couple years to get back to the city of Rome. And so there was this period of waiting and people were starting to get ready for Octavian to return. Because when he returned, there was going to be this great celebration. And so for two years, when Octavian, who finally took over the Roman Empire, who was Augustus Caesar, the son of the divine one, or the son of God at the time that Jesus was born. He's the one we read about in the Bible, the ruler over Rome at the time. So when he took over, people started to shout, euangelion, good news. See, the whole idea of good news was the idea that something remarkable had taken place. And as a result of that remarkable thing that had taken place, the future was now going to be different. There was going to be this massive party when Octavian returned. It's going to be a celebration. We're super excited. And so we're waiting and we're working and we're getting ready for his return because our future is now going to be different. And the early Christians seized on that phrase, euangelion, this idea of good news, this announcement that something remarkable had happened. Only they started saying 
something quite different. They started saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is son of, the, uh, son of the divine. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the divine one. And they started to announce this remarkable thing that had taken place. And as a result of this remarkable thing, everything would be different. That idea of the gospel that God so loved the world that he came and he showed us what, to, what it meant to be fully human. He lived out the Jesus humanity, but he also showed us what it was like to be God because he was fully human and fully God. And yes, then he goes to the cross and he gathers all the sin of the world upon himself. And he dies and he defeats sin. And then he is resurrected. He rises from the dead and he defeats death. And yes, there is eternal life, but it's pointing towards something. And so now we live between the resurrection and the ultimate return where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Eternal life is not plain a harp on a cloud somewhere. It's resurrection. It's life here. It's being fully you, the one that you were always meant to be. And so in between the resurrection and the return, we wait and we work and we announce you and Galleon, Jesus is Lord, because of something remarkable that took place. Our whole future is different and we start working now for it. This is the gospel. This is what announces the righteousness of God. So what is the righteousness of God? It wasn't about morality. It wasn't about being perfect. The Bible had ways of saying that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Bible talked about that. The idea of the righteousness of God is what we talked about last week. This idea that God had a plan and it began in a garden. You remember the whole story, Adam and Eve, there's a snake, there's an apple and that whole thing. Even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard that story. And things went wrong and humanity is broken. And so God comes to this ancient guy named Abraham and he makes a promise. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. God's solution for the problem of Adam was Abraham and his promise and his covenant that he would remain faithful to his covenant. He's not going to go back on his word, even when we are faithless. And the whole story of Israel, of ancient Israel, is them being faithless, them messing up over and over and over and over and over again, but God remaining faithful to his covenant. And finally, it was to lead up to this person, the Messiah, this person, Jesus. And Jesus was going to be the culmination or the climax of the covenant, that God would show himself faithful. The righteousness of God has to do with his covenant loyalty, the fact that he will always be faithful. And you see, Paul is telling the story to his brothers and sisters. He says, you have this zeal, but you don't have this understanding, this epinosis, this relational over a period of time, this firsthand knowledge, this experiential relational knowledge of the righteousness of God, the fact that he has been faithful to you. And he has sent his son to show you what that's like. And so he's trying to draw them forward. He's trying to take them from one place to the next. He's saying, leave that chapter behind and come to this chapter. There was nothing wrong with that chapter. In fact, in the next verse, we're going to hear Paul say exactly that. It's in, in, in verse 4, it says, Christ is the culmination of the law. Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. He, his parents weren't Joseph and Mary Christ. <laughs> it's actually a title. It's a messianic title. In Hebrew, Messiah means anointed one. In Greek, Christ means the same thing, anointed one. The Christ or the Messiah was the one who was going to be the perfect Israelite. 
It was the one who was going to be able to fulfill all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the writings. And so Jesus comes and he says, nothing is going to change about the law and the prophets until they are fulfilled. And then Paul says here that he's the culmination. In the Greek, it's the telos. It's the finish line. It's the fulfillment. It's the satisfaction of the law. It's like when you sit at the table and you eat a great meal and you're full and you don't really need to eat another bite. And so then you leave the table and you go over and you sit down on the couch and you turn on football and then you fall asleep. Yes, it's football season. It's going to happen. You know what it's like. But you don't stay at the table. You don't gorge yourself to death. That's not a healthy thing to do. Or it's like an airplane that gets you from one city to the next. And when you reach your destination, you don't turn around and say, oh, this plane didn't do its job. No, the plane did its job. It got you there. You also don't hang out and live on the plane and just stay there forever. No, you have to leave the plane and continue on your journey. Paul's trying to help them move from one chapter of the story to another chapter of the story. The law was not bad. The law was holy and just and good. The law showed us that we are broken, and it showed us how we can relate to God. But the law was fulfilled in Jesus, and now it's time to participate with Jesus. It's about participation, and participation leads to transformation. And Paul is wooing them forward to a whole new chapter in their journey. Maybe some of you are ready for a whole new chapter in your journey. Maybe the pictures in your photo album need to change a little bit. Maybe you need to look backwards into your story in order to gain perspective on the present and have hope for the future. There's a couple practices in my life that have helped me do that over the years. And and in a way, they're both very complicated and deep, and uh, they're both beautiful, but in a way, they're actually very, very simple as well. One of them is confession. And I know you you probably hear that word, and you have this image in your mind of going into this little booth, and there's a guy on the other side, and you have to share all your deep and dark secrets. Or or, or maybe you studied uh, medieval history, and you're thinking of the Inquisitions, confess, confess. Or maybe you were sitting in front of the TV in the 80s, and you saw some guy pointing at you, give me all your money, and confess, you know? And so it kind of conjures up these weird images. But actually, the the word confession uh, in the scriptures is a little bit different. It, it literally means to speak together, homologeo. It's, it's a simple, the same word. It means to speak together, to agree, or to kind of speak in harmony. It's the idea that what we speak with our lives, the way that we live our lives would be in harmony, would speak together with the Jesus humanity. And sometimes we don't, we don't speak together so well. We, our life is a little flat or it's a little sharp or it's a little pitchy. I mean, something's, something's out of whack there. And so confession and this, this practice helps us to come back in line and speak together in the rhythm of the way that God wants us to live. I will practice confession out on a trail sometimes or, or on a bike ride or riding in my car. And there's just times where I'm like, oh, man, Lord, my, I, my life is out of whack right here. I need to come back into alignment with you. Confession leads us to hope. And then the other thing is, is faith. Faith is 
simple, and at the same time, it's beautiful, and at the same time, it's really complicated. I was talking with my 13-year-old son about faith, and it's just a hard thing to grasp. Like, why can't we see it all? I mean, it, wouldn't that be great? Just, you know, we could just see everything and taste everything and feel everything, and everything is just right out there, and, and yet there's this concept of faith that's so difficult. How do I put one foot in front of the other when I really don't see where I'm headed? It's this idea of trust, and it goes back to this Again, this epinosis, this experiential over a period of time, firsthand knowledge, and it's really difficult to put one foot in front of the other when there's no relationship that's growing there. It's a little bit like that movie, What About Bob? You guys remember that movie, What About Bob? <laughs> baby steps on the bus, baby steps down the aisle, he's got the goldfish on him, go Google it. It's a funny movie, What About Bob? Come on, people. It's a great movie. I just relate to it, I guess. I don't know. But faith is difficult. I, I, I was trying to explain to my son this whole idea of faith. And, you know, how do you explain to somebody who isn't used to living by faith? And I wasn't talking about him in particular, but just the concept of how difficult it is. It's sort of like trying to explain to somebody what an In-N-Out burger tastes like. You know, they've never had one. I guess there was this European soccer player, and now he plays for the L.A. Galaxy, and he had his first In-N-Out burger, and it made the paper. Like, it was such a big deal. <laughs> Like, how do you, how do you, you have to walk into it, right? You have to begin to take one baby step after the next baby step. And so to move from one part of the chapter in the story to another part of the chapter in the story, you take a step forward. Some of the tools for confession and faith are things like the scriptures, things like prayer, things like the grow groups that Carl was talking about earlier, being in community, not just kind of showing up and doing that religious check mark, you know, once a week or, or whatever it might be. It's, it's, it's talking honestly with one another. And, and, and Paul begins to lead them through just a kind of a short process of that. Because he knows their story and he realizes that part of what needs to happen is we need to know our story. Do you know your story? Do you know where your story intersects with the story of God? Sharing stories is sacred. One of the things I did uh, about four years ago when I started to lead our staff here at Lakeside is I sat down and had coffee with every staff person, and I said, tell me your story. Tell me your God story. Tell me, tell me you know, what's your life been like? What's your history been like? When somebody invites you in to their story, you're on sacred ground. It's a privilege to share our stories. And as Paul unfolds this, he gives them sort of just a, a way to move forward. And if you look down in verse 9, this is what he says. He says, if you declare. Now, the word declare there is actually the word for confession. I like the word confession better. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. I love that. God's not in the shaming business. People are in the shaming business, unfortunately, but God's not. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. <laughs> I love how we go back to the story, and can you imagine? This is what they're hearing from the Apostle Paul. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. 
African, South American, Canadian, even Canadians, <laughs> Americans, people from Folsom, there's no difference. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And then I love this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. That's a lot of people. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I sometimes wonder what the photos would look like if there were cameras in the ancient world and if there were photos in the book of Romans. What would they look like? I, 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 imagine, I imagine a fire pit in a backyard and people sitting around sharing stories with one another, sharing their sacred stories, learning from one another. I imagine a couple people connecting over a cup of coffee and just having this long, beautiful deep conversation. I had the chance to do that this summer with some old friends of mine that I hadn't seen in 10 years, and it was life-giving for me. Rehearse the story of God. Tell the story of God. Tell it often. Tell it well. Tell your story. Rehearse your story. Tell it often. Tell it well. And move into that next chapter if that's where you are in your life. You can do that. You can, you can talk to God this morning to say, you know what, God, I want, to move, I want to move into that next chapter. I want to return to you in faith, Jesus. Or may, maybe I want to just, for the very first time, I want to trust in you, Jesus. I want to take a step forward. I've, I've heard about you. I've been exploring. I, I realize that something is, is different in my heart, and I want to trust you. There's actually some language on the back of the Lakeside Life that can help you walk through that. But you can also just pray in your own words as well. So I'm going to pray, and if you want to talk to God, you can do that as well. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for the story and the power of the pictures that it conjures up in our minds. God, thanks that you are faithful, that you have fulfilled your covenant in Jesus, and you continue to work towards a beautiful, beautiful future. And God, our present can be beautiful as well because of you, that you bring transformation as we participate with you. And so may we do that for the first time, or may we circle back around, maybe we've lost our faith for a while, and it's time to re-engage, to trust you, to take a step. Maybe it's time to do that together in a sense of community through one of our grow groups or through some friends or grab coffee with somebody. God, I pray that you would lead us, and I trust you, Spirit, to do what you can do. You're the one who works in hearts, God. Father, thanks so much for this morning in your name. Amen.